Well, the title of my message this morning is Living in Perilous Times. You know, at New Year's, I always try to think as well, do we have a New Year's message? And, and I really didn't have a New Year's message. And uh, as I was planning to start the book of James this week again, go back to James, I really felt a strong prompting to go this direction. Um, if you're on our prayer chain and you happen to see the email I sent out early yesterday morning, it had to deal, do with the Bible, the Word of God. And the, I think the urgency, the emphasis in my mind, in my heart, on the Word of God is because of the perilous times. We shouldn't need any more motivation, any greater motivation to be in the Word than simply that God tells us to do it. I mean, how many of you realize that it's a command to be in the Word, read the Word, study the Word? It's a command. Now, if we connect the dots, my understanding, when God gives a command, if we don't follow it, it's called something. Sin. And how often do we remember and remind ourselves that when I'm not in His Word, the way He wants me to be, I'm actually sinning against His commands. I don't think about it that way very often. But... The Holy Spirit's making me think about it in my own life, in the Word. I can get so busy doing all kinds of things that in my mind are good things, uh, and probably most of them are, or at least I hope some of them are, and keep busy with Christian works, God things, and ignore the Word. And I'm really being convicted in my own life that uh, that comes first, being in the Word. Living in perilous times. Perilous times. You've probably heard the story that goes something like this. A man walks up to another man that's totally down in the dumps, depressed looking, forlorn. Everything in his life and his perspective is a mess. And his well-intentioned friend says to him, Hey, cheer up. Things could be worse. And the guy takes his advice, he cheers up, and he was right. Things got worse. If you look at the book of Timothy, it's a little bit like that. That could summarize it to a large degree. Most of us, if you're familiar with the Bible, know the Apostle Paul had an unbelievable ministry. He wrote so much of the Bible that we have, so much of the New Testament was penned at his end. So many churches were planted. So many people accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because of the Apostle Paul's work and his ministry, his teaching. And probably no one in the Bible except Jesus' own death and crucifixion endured more suffering and misery, abuse, uh, rejection, beatings, imprisonment, floggings, and you could go on and on and on and on and on about Paul. And he's writing this letter to Timothy. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, and Timothy has been kind of his protege. And he's writing this letter to encourage him, I think, and remind him that it's going to get worse. Paul himself is writing this letter from a prison in Rome. And he's been in prison in Rome for quite a while, but his... Death is imminent now. It's not that long after this letter, history tells us he was finally executed. He was taken out and beheaded. Shortly before, or shortly after he wrote this letter. And 
if you look at the letter, it's, it seems really apparent that he wants Timothy to be ready, to be forewarned, to be forewarned so that he is prepared for what's coming. And the key to the whole chapter really can be found in verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Depending on your translation, it reads like this, but mark this. He could have said, get this, pay attention to this, listen to this, hear me on this. It's a strong word to get attention. And he says, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Thanks, Paul. Now, you may not realize this, but if you're into end times prophecy, I would be willing to guess that you have not looked at chapter 3 as end times prophecy. We get all wrapped up in end times prophecy looking for things like nuclear bombs falling and burning and flesh off bones and armies gathering here and there and doing this and that. And that's all well and good and it may all happen just like you think it's going to. But this is a prophecy that would give us warning signs of the end times. Paul is prophesying about what is yet to come. So it's prophetic. And in that verse, he says, there will be terrible times. There's two things, two questions right away I want to address. The last days. What are the last days? I am not one who feels like I'm going to stand up here and tell you, get ready, he's coming by Thursday. We don't know what the last days exactly means. We do know some things. It could mean the whole church age from Jesus' first coming and his death and resurrection until his return. Last days. It could mean the culmination or the end of a particular spiritual conflict or a, or a spiritual disciplining and, and they're in the last days of that. Or it could mean we are in the last days that He is coming soon. And the reality is, I don't care how you define it, we're in the last days. And He describes the last days by saying they're going to be terrible. Now your translations may say something else besides the word terrible. Mine just says difficult times. But what I did is I looked at that word, difficult times, that's translated difficult times, and I discovered that that particular word in the Greek is only translated terrible. It only shows up in two places in the whole Bible. Only two places. One of them's here, describing these terrible times. The other place is in Matthew 8, 28, talking about two demonized men who are acting violently, exceedingly violent, most translations say. And that word, terrible, is translated exceedingly violent. We are going to be living in times that are going to be getting exceedingly violent. A pastor named Ray Pritchard said it this way, Savage times will come as men cast off all moral restraint and society begins to disintegrate as a paraphrase of that verse. Terrible times, savage times, as we cast off moral restraint and society begins to disintegrate. Paul is telling Timothy to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And he's, he's cautioning him very clearly of what's coming. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 13 and break it into four or five sections as we go through it. I want to first read the first verses 2 through 5 and make some references to it. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, 
proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its, but denying its power, have nothing to do, do with those people. Notice as you go through that, if you read that, if you take the time and meditate on it, I think you'll see at least three or four things there that I see. First, there's a total rejection of God. The people become unholy, ungrateful, a thankless people. If you are a Christian who believes in God of the Bible, believes that Jesus Christ died for your sins, our hearts should be overflowing with thanksgiving continually. In everything, give thanks. An ungrateful people. A terrible attitude. Lovers of themselves, a selfish people. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The end times, these are some of the symptoms that Paul is warning Timothy. Now, as we go through these verses, I think we can all recognize that that at certain levels, all of these are present all the time. All the time. But what he's saying is, it is going to manifest it to such a degree that you can't miss it. Total rejection of God. Then we see total moral collapse. For God is rejected, morality collapses. And he uses words like the people become lovers of money. They become conceited, without love towards other, boastful, proud, unforgiving, conceited, haters of good. As I was going through those lists of words and thinking, boy, this is ugly, one of the words caught my attention was without love towards others. My translation just says, not loving. And that word, there's, there's about four different words in the Bible for love. The agape love of God, that unconditional love. Phileo love, that brotherly love. This one's neither one of those. This word is used primarily to talk about love within a family. And as I look at that word, and I think that is the most common usage of that Greek word, when it says non-loving, to me... Could it be talking about the total breakdown of the family unit? In particular, it makes reference in the original language to not loving children within the family. And if you study history about what has happened to children throughout history, it's ugly. You go back to the Canaanites. They were sacrificing their children on their pagan altars. And much worse, the Persian people, they would literally even bury children alive. If a woman happened to die on childbirth, they took a live, the live baby and buried it in there with them. Many, many of the Grecian states allowed infanticide. And in fact, in many of them, it was encouraged and mandated. They even had rules and laws in some of the Grecian states. If I, I had a child, and especially if it was a girl, he says girls, especially if it was a girl, and I could see a deformation or something wrong. I could take it, and all I had to do was get five of my buddies to say, hey, come and check this out. Look at that finger. It's pointed the wrong way. If I could get five people to agree, we'd kill it. 
No love in the family. Rome, the Roman Empire was even worse. It was so bad in the Roman Empire, they would, they would leave children out in the cold elements. They would let animals tear them apart. They would throw them in and drown them. They would suffocate them. One of the historians of the early Roman Empire wrote it this way, children are not worthy of the sword. They should die some other way. And that's one of the things that Paul is prophesying in the last days there's going to be no love, this familial love, love towards children. Infanticide. 396,000 babies were murdered in America last year by Planned Parenthood alone by their own statistics. Who cares? Do we? Are we living in the last days? Woman's rights. It's not a right. It's murder. And the church condones it. And if I preach that way, i got people probably in here that don't like what I'm saying. And there's certainly people in the world who don't like what I'm saying. But is the gospel going to go forward the way God intends it, or isn't it? If not by the church, by who? In the end times. Finally, there's a breakdown of the total society after we see rejection of God, moral, moral collapse. People be treacherous, rash, slanderous, brutal, disobedient to parents, abusive and without self-control. When I read that group of words, it struck me disobedient to parents is stuck in with those other ugly words. What was Paul doing that for? Because rebellion starts in our homes. Starts with our children. The breakdown of the family. No self-control. What does that mean? That means anything goes. Paul is saying, Timothy, you think it's bad now because it was bad then? He says, you haven't seen anything yet. There's going to be no self-control. No self-control. No rules. No moral standards. No restraints. Every man doing what's right in their own eyes. And woe to the person who dares to question the lifestyle choices of another. No self-control. And then the last thing that really struck me was having a form of godliness but denying its power. I'm thinking, what does that mean? It means as bad as it's going to be in those end times, people are going to be drawn to religion of some sort. Some place where they can call God, God and yet deny his power. I think it's a really interesting thing that 80, depending on the statistics, 80 to 90% of Americans say they believe in God. Ask the same question, how many believe in the Bible is the literal word of God, and the percentage drops way down. How can you say you believe in God, but you deny what he says to be true? It just doesn't work. But it doesn't matter to that mind. A form of godliness, but denying his power. They'll be looking for a type of religion that allows them to do whatever they want and says it's okay. Live any way you want. It's okay. It might look something like universalism. We're all going to heaven anyway. They're going to be looking for religious leaders who are going to tell them what they want to hear. 
certainly not condemn anything. Where tolerance is confused with compassion. If we're intolerant, we don't love anybody. No, something's either true or it isn't true. Where if we, we confront something that's clearly called sin in the Bible, we're intolerant bigots. Paul's predicting all this. You'd almost think it might have meaning for our culture today, wouldn't you? They will make the claim that they believe in God, but they're going to deny anything the God they say believe in says. And the Bible tells us this. Avoid those people. Have nothing to do with them. It doesn't mean we quit evangelizing. It doesn't mean we don't share the gospel. It doesn't mean we quit loving people. It says don't have anything to do with those kind of religions. And those that are teaching and promoting those kinds of religions. So he prophetically describes these last days with some really clear things. And for me, as I'm looking through it, call me biased, call me intolerant, call me negative, whatever you want. It sounds like the world we're living in. And it sounds like it's accelerating more and more. Paul condemns these apostate leaders in verses 6 through 9. He says this, There are going to be, there are the kind who will worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Before the women rise up here, he's talking about a type of woman. But he's really making a principle here about weak-willed people. Okay? Weak-willed people. What does it mean? Those they worm their way into the homes and gain control over these weak-willed women, weak-willed people who are loaded down with their sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds. He's talking about religious leaders. Preachers, if you would. And he says, these men with depraved minds who as far as faith is concerned, they are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone eventually. Paul is warning Timothy, watch out for these kind of leaders. And when you read that, you say, well, they're not sneaking into anybody's home and getting a hold of weak-willed women. These kinds of leaders are not sneaking into your home. You're inviting them into your home. When you turn on television programs, when you go on internets, when you go on websites, and you're not discerning what you're listening to, watching or hearing or reading, you're inviting them into our homes. It's easier today than it ever was in history. He says you've got to watch for these. If we're not firmly grounded in the Word of God, we can be easily swayed one way or another. And that's what he's warning about, that there's going to be these kind of teachers, these kinds of leaders, and they're not new. They're not new. The Bible doesn't tell me who these two guys, Janus and Jambres, are. I don't even know if that's how you say their names. But history does say this. Tradition, Jewish tradition says they were two of the leaders in Egypt, of the priests, the magicians. Remember when they confronted Moses, when Moses first came and he threw his staff down and it turned into a snake? The priest said, that isn't nothing. They threw their staff down and it turned into a snake. 
They were mimicking some of the early plagues. That's who the tradition says these two guys were. They were confronting, they were counterfeiting, they were duplicating. Demonically, satanically, what God was doing, trying to to, to lead the people astray. And it's interesting to me that in this whole section of Scripture about what's coming in the end times, that gets referenced and it makes me wonder, are there going to be spiritual leaders? Are there going to be preachers? Are there going to be evangelists that are going to be so deceived in their own mind and they're going to be so familiar with demonic spirits that they can do counterfeit and fake miracles? And I say that because the Bible tells us that's what they're going to be like. And it's coming. Religious leaders. How do we discern? If we're seeking nothing but experiences and we aren't founded on the Word of God, you'll be pretty impressed by some charlatan doing a counterfeit miracle under the power of Satan. And you'll follow his teaching. This is what's coming in the world. This is what's happening. That's why they're going to be seeking religion, seeking but denying the power of God. We are living in scary times. But there's nothing for us to be afraid of if we're grounded in the Word of God. And Paul is working towards that as his ultimate climax of this section of Scripture. God will eventually expose them all. Boy, if I read through that and you really have enjoyed my message so far, it's so uplifting. (laughs) Is there ever any good news? Or what do I do about all this? Well, Paul goes on and he says, if it's coming, and it is, Timothy would probably be going like I'm going, how, how in the world then should I live? What should I do? How will we not just survive these savage days that are coming, but how will we carry out the mission that God has called us to? I firmly believe, as I share often here, I have a divine destiny and so do you. God has a plan and a divine destiny and it isn't just to survive by the skin of your teeth when it hits the fan. Whatever it is. Keep your minds pure. (laughs) So Paul goes on and he gives some instruction. Very practical. Very practical instruction. I like practical and I like simple. I believe the first thing we see is shown in verses 10 through 13. Look past the fact that Paul is talking about just himself as he's telling Timothy. Basically what he is saying is, is, Timothy, you know me well. You've observed me. You know what I teach. You know what I believe. You've looked at me. You know me well. And he says this in those verses. You, however, know all about my teaching. You know my way of life. You know my purpose. You know my faith. You know my patience, love, and endurance. You know the persecutions and sufferings, what kinds of things have happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I believe what Paul is towing to Timothy here is there's a principle for us to put into play in our lives. And this is the simple principle and the truth that, you know what, we become like the people we associate with. And Paul is using himself as an example that says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I believe that's something that we need to take as one of the cautions. Who are you following? as they follow Christ. Who is your model? Who is your mentor? 
We know we all follow Christ. We all have the Holy Spirit. But who in our circle are we following? He says, you know my life. In other words, he has nothing to hide. The people that we should be following should have nothing to hide. They should be transparent. They should be vulnerable before us. He says, you know my teaching, my doctrine. They teach the truth. If you don't know the truth, how do you know they're teaching the truth? You need to know the Word. The Word of God. He says, you know my faith, you know my love, you know my patience. In other words, say, the people that you follow, the people that you look at, they need to practice what they preach. He says, you need to know these people. He says, you know my sufferings, you know my persecutions, and he's just simply saying, I'm not afraid of persecution. I will stand boldly for the cross of Christ, the gospel message. Paul's point is, find people like this and follow them. But the thing that struck me is the only way that I am going to be able to find those people and follow those people confidently is I need to have a relationship with them. I need to know them. How many of you know the authors you so much love to read? How many of you know the televangelists that you so much love to watch? Now, I'm not condemning all of them by any means, but I'm just saying, do we keep our eyes open? Or are we just looking and listening for what tickles our ears and is our passion? I mean, I can have a guy that I like and somebody says to me, boy, do you know that this guy did this or said that? I go, well, yeah, you can find out bad stuff about everybody. Well, that's true, but is that a good answer? No. I need to go check it out. I need to go find out myself. Does it have some merit? Just because it could be a bunch of baloney from somebody that doesn't agree with his theology and I happen to like the guy, then I'm going to defend him with that patent? Well, everybody has something bad. I've been told if you listen to all my sermons online, you might find a mistake. (laughs) I'm sure because of that laughter, you don't believe it either. (laughs) No one's perfect. I get that. But Paul's saying... If you're going to follow someone and you're going to let them lay foundations into you, teach you, you need to know them. I'd much rather follow one of you that I know well, that I have been in the trenches with, that I know what you believe, I know what you stand for, I know that you're transparent and you're not hiding something. I would much rather follow you than some guy who's got a college named after him and travels the world and sends millions of dollars overseas and he's having an affair and doing drugs that I didn't know about because I don't know him. Who do you know? God, Follow godly examples. Second very practical thing is stay the course. Stay the course. Continue in what you've learned. Continue in the truth. And in verses 14 and 15 he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you've learned it. There it is again. Because you know who's teaching you this stuff. And how from infancy infancy have you known the Holy Scriptures? What is it you're supposed to know? The Scriptures. The Word. Know the Word. Remember the Word. Hang on to the Word. Live in the Word. Bad times are coming. The answer is the Word. which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I understand, the Bible doesn't save me. Jesus Christ dying on a cross for my sins, 
Me being wooed by the Holy Spirit, me accepting the gift of salvation, that's what saves me. I get that, but the Word of God saves us. How does the Word of God save us? When we properly understand the Word of God, we could put it something like this. Because the words that are written down, the Holy Scriptures, they give us wisdom. The wisdom written in those words makes me wise. And those words and the wisdom reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ to me. Wise for salvation. And the gospel produces faith in Jesus Christ. It's really interesting to me that when Paul is telling Timothy this, the New Testament didn't exist. What's he saying? The Old Testament. Don't throw out the Old Testament, anybody, ever. That's all Timothy had. And he's saying that scripture, the Old Testament, will give you wisdom to understand the gospel. The gospel. Even though he wasn't even born yet. The gospel unto salvation. Faith. We need to continue doing what we're doing. You know, everything we need to know about going to heaven is found in the Bible. And guess what? Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Now, the Bible is not an encyclopedia. It's not a dictionary. It's not a recipe book. There are lots of things that you will not find in the Bible. But what you will find is the most important thing, and that's how to know God. It's in there. You know, you can't go to, you know, I, I say the Bible's all we ever need. And somebody says, oh, really, which computer should I buy? Does the Bible tell me? Um, sort of. It tells you you've got a brain. Decide. Use some wisdom, knowledge, and information. But no, it doesn't. But it tells me what we need to know. The truth of the Word of God. Think about this, and you can add to my list. I just, this is the list. The words of God can save you, forgive you, justify you, sanctify you, purify you, transform you, regenerate you, and one day they will even make sure that you're in heaven. The Word of God. Everything we need to know about life with God is in the Bible. Everything. It's in the Bible. If we need to know something else, he'd have told us. It stands complete, finished. And what it will do is produce a new life in every one of us, a godly life, a life that grows and bears fruit, a loving life, a Christ-like life in the Bible. I, I resist taking long rabbit trails, but... If you don't believe the Bible's the truth, everything I've shared with you so far is hogwash. Because it's all found in the Bible. And we're going to get to where the Bible's God-breathed, but if you don't believe that, none of this matters. And I would love to take a, the time to give you the evidence as to why the Bible is accepted by reasonable men. The Word of God will make you complete. In verses 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training to righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is the Bible true? Is the Bible the Word of God? I would love to ask people this question when they come at me saying things about the Bible not being true. Have you ever read it? Have you ever read it? Problem is, most of the people that are Christians haven't read it either. 
gets to be a problem. Then they throw in my face, you have such blind faith. And I say, boy, are you wrong. One of us has blind faith and it isn't me. You can look at the Bible with the historical evidence. You can look at the... This, this is evidence that they use on any type of literary materials, historical books. Look at the historical evidence. Look at the internal evidence. Does it contradict itself? Does it support itself? Look at the external evidence. Does history books, does Josephus writing, Philo's writing, do they, do they line up with the Scripture? Look at the external evidence. Look at the historical method of determining truth or not versus scientific method. Look at the odds mathematically of, of prophecies coming true and then tell me the Bible's not true. Look at all of these things with an open mind, but they won't. And the ones that criticize the hardest have done the least research. And that's okay for them. But it should not be okay for Christians. Every one of us should be able to defend the Bible without just saying, well, God said it, therefore I believe it's true. That's true, 100%. But that isn't good enough for me if I don't believe you. And I've shared this before. I stood in the, up at the college in front of a, the, the room full of kids and I asked, how are you all doing with sharing the word and sharing your faith? I says, good, somebody share your faith with me. And they started out and as soon as they said something about the Bible, I said, I don't believe the Bible's true. Next, no one in the room knew what to do. Except one young guy in the back who'd read Josh McDowell's book, Evidence that Demands a Verdict or More Than a Carpenter. And he came with the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the scientific evidence for the skeptics. Yeah, it's all out there. The external evidence, the internal evidence. It's all there. I say all that to hopefully create some interest. But the matter of fact is, the Bible teaches us that the Word of God is God-breathed. Now, I think we understand when I say it's inspired. Men wrote the Bible. We all get that. I mean, everybody knows that. Men wrote the words on paper, on parchment. Okay. God breathed them. And I think when we say God inspired them, that, that, that can bring confusion. I mean, if you're gifted and creative, God can inspire you to write a book. You can be inspired to write a song. There's lots of talented, creative people out there who look at a sunset and they're so inspired they write something. It's awesome. That's not the same as being God-breathed. God breathed the words and Moses wrote them down. God breathed the word, David wrote them down. God breathed the words, Daniel wrote them down. He breathed the word, Matthew wrote them down. He breathed the word, Paul wrote them down. There's a big difference between the way we think of inspired and God-breathed. It's the highest possible view of the Bible, and that's why you should be convinced in your mind and your intellect that the Bible is the truth, not just blind faith. I don't have much time for blind faith because if that's all you've got, you aren't going to convince me of anything. But when I know and I reach this point where the evidence is so overwhelming, I have to make a choice, yay or nay. It's like going to court in our nation. That's why they say, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, 
because you cannot prove a historical event scientifically. It is impossible. Scientific method does not work. For scientific method to work, you have to be able to create the exact same environment and do it the same way over and over and over and over and over with your hypotheses and your theories and collecting your data. And you can't even prove to me you brushed your teeth this morning. Scientifically, it's impossible. Go to court, you can't prove beyond any doubt. So I reached this place in my own life where I looked at all the evidence and I started over here as a skeptic biology, chemistry, physics teacher, looking at the facts. And I came to a conclusion. Somebody has blind faith, and it isn't the guy who says he believes the Bible is the Word of God, if he's done his research. It's God's breeze. You want to know what God's will is? Study the Bible. You want to fulfill your mission in life? Study the Bible. You want to know what God wants you to do next? Study the Bible. You want to live a better life? Study the Bible. You want to get free of sin? Study the Bible. You want God to be pleased with the way you're living? Study the Bible. It will tell you everything you want to know. Everything. I want to close with looking at Paul's summation in verses 16 and 17. He says, all Scripture as God reads is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice the words. God's Word teaches us. It'll teach us what's right. It rebukes us. It teaches us what's not right. It teaches us and corrects us. In other words, how do I get it right? And it tells us how to stay right. It trains us into righteousness. And the result is we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God is part of the armor of God, and it's called the sword. It's a weapon. You know, if we still fought wars that way, can you imagine going into battle and having this amazing, amazing sword, but you kept it in your scabbard and never drew it? We are in a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. And Paul is saying, Timothy, it's going to get really bad. And if he told Timothy that 2,000 years ago, it's going to get really bad. Is your sword that sarcasm thing is just always so close in my life? Is your sword in your coffee table drawer collecting dust? Is your sword on a shelf somewhere you don't even know where it is? Is it under your bed? Where is your sword? And you know what power it has and what authority it has and when have you taken it out and sharpened it? Prepared yourself. Paul's answer to all these terrible times that are going to come are really simple. Nine words. Know the word, study the word, Obey the word. Read it, know it, and obey it. And we will way more than survive. You know, as, 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 admirable, as, as admirable as it is to see all these things out there and want to try to fix them, it isn't going to work. Don't quit trying, but it isn't going to work. We're not called to fix any of this. 
We're called to be loving people, doing good things wherever we can. But we're never going to fix it. We are called to bring glory and honor to God no matter what. We don't want to just survive. We are to thrive. When it gets tougher out there, when it gets darker, and you have love, and you have joy, and you have peace in your heart, and your life is filled with hope in spite of, people are going to rush to you asking you, what is the source of your hope, your love, your joy, your peace? And you can then share with them, Jesus Christ is the hope that lives within me. And he can live in you too. And you get an opportunity to tell him. Are you prepared to defend the word? 2015, if you've never read through the word, make this the year you do it. Read it. You're going to go get so sick of me telling you to read the word. Feel free to throw it back in my face and ask me how I'm doing reading the word. Because if it's going to get this ugly, we better be grounded. There's going to be imposters. You know, one of the words for those imposters, those false teachers, was magicians or jugglers. Playing games with the truth, doing counterfeits. We, we will be so easily swayed. But you need to know the word. Okay, let's close. Lord, I, I pray that... I pray first, Lord, that you would take the words that I've shared and filter it. And whatever was not of you, let it fall to the ground harmless. And whatever was, God, I pray it would take root in our lives. God, I pray that, that uh, your word will fulfill everything that you declare it to do. God, that our lives will be changed. We will be empowered. God, that our lives will become more Christ-like as we know and understand your word and apply it to our life. And God, we do know that perilous times are here and they're going to become even more perilous. But God, you have told us that not to fear, not to fear. Our hope is in you. And I pray, Lord, that 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 spirit of fear would find no place in the lives of your people and your church. Lord, I pray all these things that you would receive all the glory and honor in our lives, through our lives, and through your word. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.